Here we go. The Earth Fox Podcast. Welcome to the Earth Fox Podcast. With 404. Missing link. Yeah, he's a great man, by the way. Please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And visit us at vox404.com. Enjoy the show. Well, first things first, I have to correct a gaffe from the last show that I was horrified to hear back when I, when I did eventually listen back. I said that Mark Milley was Donald Trump's chief of staff, which was uh, close only in uh, the words used. Mark Meadows is Donald Trump's chief of staff. He's actually one of the defendants in the RICO case in Georgia. But Mark Milley is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, like the number one general of all the generals. And uh, it, it drives me absolutely crazy because it's like uh, when you hear somebody say, for all intensive purposes, instead of for all intents and purposes is how the, you know, whatever the, the nomenclature, the turn of phrase is supposed to, is, you know, supposed to go. And then I heard myself maybe a, a few episodes ago, I was saying something along the lines of drawing the ire of, you know, a, a, a particular group. And m- maybe I misheard it. I, sh- I should actually go back and listen because, I mean, you know, sometimes you think you hear something a certain way. And if you ever have the opportunity to, to listen back, you realize, oh, no, I, I, I heard that wrong. But I heard myself say, uh, aisle <laughs> instead of ire. And I'm just like, I know, I know what these words mean. I consider myself to be a pretty educated, articulate person. And, uh, oh, it's, I'm not a person that gets embarrassed very easily. But uh, when I hear myself doing those kind of things, especially when it feels and, and sounds like it's coming out the right way, I, I am so embarrassed, especially now that the, the listenership and, and viewership has grown so much. I, uh, I know that you're out there listening to me friggin' humiliate myself. <laughs> <laughs> In 404, welcome back, man. Sorry, uh, sorry we missed you all yesterday. You know, things happen. Life gets in the way. Uh, yeah, uh, I was trying to, yeah, sorry. I had a, like, crazy, yeah, business meeting. I just, I couldn't move it. Well, yeah, so, I mean, that's. Well, I apologize. That, that's the way it goes, you know, and until we're uh, paying the bills with our podcast gains, we're going to have life events that get in the way. So smash the like button and share the show and visit vox404.com and share that all on social media and, you know, make us famous. We rely on you to spread the word. That's the number one way that podcasts are grown is, is through word of mouth. So please take up this mantle as a friend of the show, share it with, with other friends because you know, your friends are our friends. And, uh, but I, I mean, I don't know. We talk about some pretty controversial topics 
This may be, uh, it, it could be friendship ending. But I, yeah, I, to be fair. I think, yeah. I, I, I feel like if, if your friends are the kind of people that would say, whoa, you like listening to this person that has these opinions, we can't be friends anymore. I don't think these are, those are very good friends to have. Because a friend is supposed to, uh, you know, stick with you through thick and thin and be there for you and, uh, you know, not, not judgmental, right? Yeah, that's what, that's, ideally. That's what they always say, especially in terms of having a relationship. If, uh, if this person is trying to end your relationship or friendship because of X, Y, or Z, well, maybe they weren't that you know, good of a friend to begin with. So that being said, here's Jim Gaffigan. Really, all women are amazing, and I mean that in a very pandering way. <laughs> but women are, really. You know, a woman can grow a baby inside their body. And then somehow a woman can deliver the baby through their body. And then by some miracle, a woman can feed a baby with their body. And when you think of the male contribution to life... It's kind of embarrassing, really. The guy's always like, you know what, I helped too. For like five seconds. Doing the one thing I think about 24 hours a day. Well, enjoy your morning sickness. I'm gonna eat me some chili. Mm, smell those onions. <laughs> you want some? I guess not, huh? It's kind of funny. My, uh, I mean, it's not that funny. It, the, the, the point of playing that, uh, aside from pointing out that at the end he's referring to uh, a woman's aversion to certain foods and smells while they're pregnant, we don't get to eat meatloaf anymore in my house because my wife made it you know, one too many times when she was pregnant, and now she's got uh, an atrocious aversion to meatloaf, uh, uh, much to my chagrin do, do you do you eat meatloaf in the uk you know i don't think i've ever seen a meatloaf in the uk like one time well that's cool i don't know i don't know what american food is really i mean i know what I we uh, i know what we eat i think it's very american it's very american for you guys just to like put a bunch of meat and just squish it together into just a big block of you know well, doesn't that kind of describe be uh, beef Wellington as well? I mean, that's a very British dish. I think many people would be so angry that you've like cross-referenced meatloaf and beef Wellington. Well, that's, I mean, that's my American ignorance. I've never had beef Wellington, although I would like to try it. I'm a fan of Gordon Ramsay, and that's one of his favorite dishes, or, or you know, <laughs> if not his most favorite. <laughs> but to me, at, at the surface level, observing Beef Wellington, it's like, oh, well, it's just uh, breaded meatloaf. I mean, I know there's other things in there, but people fancy up meatloaf with, you know, all kinds of other ingredients that they smash in there. But yeah, meatloaf has, it's got a weird, and, and there's like a weird glaze that they put on the top of it a lot that's, I think that it's based from, ketchup and and i don't know i 
I enjoy it for the most part, uh, but it's not, uh, <laughs> it's no longer part of my diet because my, my poor pregnant wife, well, I mean, when she was pregnant, she's not pregnant now. She just, uh, she couldn't stand it. It was, it was nauseating. But I was listening to this clip from Jeff Ga- uh, Jim Gaffigan talking about the male contribution to life. And it was, it is funny. You know, the woman, the woman does all of these things with her body, her, you know, she creates the life inside of her body with, a, with minimal, uh, you know, contribution from the man. Mm. And then births the body or births the baby and then feeds the baby. Mm-hmm. And, and I was just thinking like, reflecting on the truth of what Jim Gaffigan is saying. But then I thought, well, what, what is really the function of the man in, in the relationship in, for the human race in, in all of society? And, and what is, what is your opinion on, on that, on, on, on what he's saying and, and sort of the diminished role of a man in society? Uh, I, I don't know. I'm not the best person to talk to about this because I, I don't have children personally. But um, I think, I think the role of the man has diminished because the government has picked up some of the slack in being, you know, the parents or or I don't know the breadwinners of some families. Like for example, if you go back a long time, you couldn't do the single parent thing, whereas now you you probably could with a lot of benefits and that kind of thing so maybe that's the way it's diminished because of course you know while the woman is pregnant right you know she's not working uh or quite often they're not working um you know who's buying the food who's doing all this stuff so there's definitely a huge role to play and it's probably a modern thing that that has happened i think with the diminished role um i always feel yeah I, i feel very sympathetic to the woman that is you know, hugely pregnant, you know, not to be too insensitive about it. I mean, the the point being that she's eight months pregnant, she's got a, you know, seven pounds human growing inside of her. And Mm. she still has to get up and go to work for, you know, who knows how many hours. But it's interesting what you brought up about about the government being sort of the man uh, as well as the parents as, and, and the government is playing these roles now. Yeah, of course, that, because they're providing shelter and they're providing food and they're providing money, right? Which is what the man or, or you know, the, just the other half. Uh, you know, a man couldn't biologically produce another person the way a woman no. can. But no, a, a woman couldn't do that without the man either. And this, this feminist movement has also kind of contributed, I think, more to the government developing this role as the man in the relationship. Because you're right, the man before massive governments would provide the protection from whatever dangers yeah. in in nature was was going out to hunt i mean 
women listening, if you've ever been pregnant, you know how just draining it is on your body and, and how uh, much more intensely it becomes draining as you progress through the pregnancy. But it, it's, it's not really about having direct experience with, with a pregnant woman. It's about looking at, at the functions that the man is supposed to perform in the relationship. Because we didn't always have big government. We didn't always have, uh, you know, law enforcement patrolling the streets, keeping everyone safe. There were predators. And there were, you know, other men functioning as predators. There was a necessity to, uh, well, I mean, it, and, and it remains. It not The necessity isn't was, it remains. That you need to be fed. You need to be sheltered. You need to be protected. And the role of the man in society has been devalued by feminism, I believe. And, and I think, you know, we, we talked about feminism a, a few episodes ago. Feel free to check it out. And, yeah, for and sure. you know, communicate your own analysis. Mm-hmm. The real earth box at protonmail.com is, is where you can go. Uh, you can also, uh, Follow us on, on Discord. The, well, geez, the Discord did this whole thing with uh, usernames. So now I don't even know. I mean, previously it was uh, Earthbox hashtag 1256. I think you could probably find us. If you do that and you can join in the conversation. But feminism goes back so far. It, it, it's, it's just, it's hard for me to look at the state of the world and think this is just a new recent thing that's developing. It feels to me like a lot of what we're dealing with got started post-World War II. And I've, I've brought it up before on the show. There's uh, what's called the Frankfurt School, which is, you know, without digging too deep into the details sort of a controversial organization that was kind of blamed for a lot of the cultural and societal issues that led to World War II and the Holocaust. And the story goes that just before World War II kicked off, or or I should say just before the Nazis rose to power and really started trying to dominate Europe, the founders of the Frankfurt School fled to America. And the way things sort of work out uh, generationally, it stands to reason that these people responsible for creating the cultural and societal disturbances in Europe circa World War II have have, have now created the same sort of issues in the United States that are now appear to be culminating in, in World War III, which is where we're, we're kind of heading now, it would seem. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you look at uh, the way the world is coming together against Russia, it's hard to say that it's not World War III. I, just, I think when we look back in the history books, it will be World War III. And yeah, and well, and it's the, the same thing is being said about a, a, a civil war in America. 
you know, a, a second civil war. But I don't know. People are so they're so contented with just the the day to day grind. I mean, we have we have no fewer responsibilities as as human beings now than we did, you know, in the days of of prehistoric man. We still need to protect each other and feed each other and have you know the basic necessities to survive. This corporate world, the, you know, whatever globalist corporatocracy that is developing for us has established our, our day-to-day culture to be like, okay, get up in the morning, go to do your job for eight hours or more, come back, keep, kick your feet up, uh, uh, drink a beer, watch the game, recuperate from your long day at work, and then rinse and repeat. So who really has the time or the energy to pay attention to what's going on in the world? And this is how we've been set up into this, you know, flying headfirst into this authoritarian, you know, government that's blossoming over all of us. And it seems to me to be like the natural progression. When you look at the 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 big tech oligarchies, well, just and just the state of of corporate everything. Yeah, we have this capitalist system that demands quarterly profits, and I've always said at a certain point you have to you will have to start taking as a corporation from the consumers and from your employees to maintain those, those corporate profits, because the idea is climb the ladder, make it get, get to the top of the corporate ladder, get to be that CEO, that Titan of industry. And then what, then you want to stay there. And it seems like the natural progression for capitalism is communism. Because how can you, as a human being, remember we're human beings and the behavior of human beings is not that much different today as it was 2,000 years ago because human beings are human beings. You reach the top of the capitalist ladder and you want to stay there. And how do you stay there? Well, you have to remove competition. You have to buy up government officials. You have to craft the culture and the politics and the government and all, all of these things to, just to maintain your power. And I'm, and I'm talking about CEOs here. I'm not talking about government officials. You have to remove people's ability to compete with you, which means you don't want to make more millionaires and billionaires and, and, and more people that could start their own businesses and potentially become CEOs to threaten your power. So from the perspective of big tech, you're in a really prime, I mean, it, it's, it's the most dangerous, in my opinion, it's the most dangerous industry because, like, look at what happened with Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg uh, however many years ago. And this is, I think, th- there, there's two perspectives to take here, and I, I'd love your opinion. Mm-hmm. Mar- Mark Zuckerberg went before Congress and got sort of browbeaten about his acquisition of Instagram. 
And they were saying, sure. well, well, why shouldn't we break you up? You have all of this power. You have all of this control of information. You've been censoring people. Why, why should we, why shouldn't we break you up? And he, you know, whatever, I gave his alien response and drank his water and became a meme and, and, <laughs> and, and, and the world sort of moved on. I mean, because it, it wasn't even much of a story. Like we all saw the pictures. We laughed at it for a few days. Yeah. And I, I, I think about it in, in two different ways. Mark Zuckerberg goes and, 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 you know, he, he plays the, the, little bitch i mean to be blunt but what happens when the cameras turn off mm -hmm, zuckerberg mm -hmm. can tell all of these people in congress look if you want anybody to know who you are you better back off of me because i will just delete you from existence on the internet no one will ever see another campaign ad from you no one will other ever see another post that you make mm -hmm. because i have that power on the other hand, the government can turn to Zuckerberg and say, you better do what we say, and you better censor the narratives and the people that we tell you to censor, or we're going to use Section 230, and we're going to break you up. And I just don't know which one is more likely. What do you think? Honestly... Mm, let's have a look. Let's have a look. Let's have a look. I mean, there's a so, lot of stuff going on, uh, yeah. especially like in in Europe. I don't know specifically about the UK because, mm -hmm. um, and well, and like in Canada also, there's all the stuff about the 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 news censorship and not being able to link or share links. Um, and I just don't know. I, I mean, I feel like on one hand that is more about crafting the narrative it's it's sort of uh, a safety net yeah but it must be a little bit detrimental to to facebook and instagram right um it is and it isn't like if you look at social media i've, I've been i've been working really really in depth in the social media space for the past five years it's your you world know, it's, mate. It's, it's my world this is my profession um it's how i know how they work um and Social media only care about one thing, and that is engagement. They want to maximize the engagement on your platform, right? So that's why Elon Musk has added five seconds to any external link. That's why Facebook and other platforms are stopping people linking to and, and all that kind of thing to, to Facebook because they want people to get their information from Facebook, from Instagram, from TikTok, whatever. Whether that's good information or, or, or bad information, they want to make sure people are seeing it on social media. And once you look at it that way, you, you, you start to realize that social media is, other than ones that have outright said, like Twitter did, did say, you know, they're more of a left-leaning left company before Elon took it over. And I'm sure other companies are the same. But roundly speaking, social media companies only care about one thing, and that's engagement. And they are designed to promote things that get more engagement. So you start to see that fake news articles that are really, uh, you know, outrageous, they get lots of clicks because people react to it. People get mad at them. People get mad at those people that are mad. So it's sort of like a snowball effect. So if I, if I look at Facebook, for example, Facebook is a very large company and they own 
a great deal of social media and other companies. You know, they own the Meta thing. They own WhatsApp. What was that? Instagram. What was that thing? Oh, Threads. That that was the threads, right? the yeah, Twitter threads. clone that they were trying to come up with. Or yeah, X. Right? It's called X now. Forgive me. <laughs> yeah, tw- yeah. I I don't quite understand why he changed the name of Twitter to X. I don't get it. But well, and the URL fine. is the same too. You you still go to twitter.com. Yeah, because that would be like SEO suicide for them to change the URL. And and but and they're even they're, they're, but they even have a bot that goes. Uh, I I made a post complaining about uh, you know uh, visibility, and I got an I got an autom- an automated bot replied to my thing because I said uh, uh you know something like apparently on Twitter blah 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 blah. And the automated bot responded, actually, it's called X now. So I, because I'm an asshole, I <laughs> screen, screen grabbed a shot of the URL and said, actually, and just posted the picture like, uh, until it's X.com, it's still going to be Twitter to me and, and many other people. But uh, yeah, I feel like you were making a point and I interrupted you. No, that's all right. I think, I think ultimately it's all about it's all about motives. So, you know, it... well, it's interesting what you were saying about yeah. engagement and about and mm-hmm. and and the external links and what yes. Elon is doing with with Twitter X whatever, because um, I'm reminded well, the... of this this article. Or, or this story about um, Twitter X removing headlines from from links to news articles. Yeah. So I wonder, what are they are they putting? Are they going to put the full body of the text in in the link? Like like how how would you do that? Is is I mean, if you were Elon Musk and you wanted to remove headlines. From Twitter, I mean, I understand what he's what he's doing because it, it was like you said, the the sensational clickbait headlines. Yeah, for sure. People that's what just, he's. That's definitely what he's doing. People just he's read trying, them, yeah. my, myself yeah. included, and go, "That's the story." That's but but you and 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 uh, journalistic outlets. You know, it's it's the editors. I wouldn't blame the the journalists themselves. The actual writers. But the editors will create this headline that holds up for the first four paragraphs, and then the second four paragraphs of the article debunk the headline. But people read the headline and go, oh, this is, this is the fact. Keep moving on. Yeah. Well, I mean, personally, you know, if I'm, if I'm Elon Musk or I'm Mark Zuckerberg or I'm whoever that runs a social media company and someone posts something on the platform that has a headline, if that generates significant engagement on the platform, that is not necessarily a bad thing. Actually, I'd be loving that. That would be perfect if someone posts some bullshit article and, it, and people start talking about it on Twitter. That's perfect. I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to stop people posting clickbait headlines and then clicking on the article to come off of Twitter. That's what they're trying to do. So, um, because that's where they make their money. If you look at where 
Twitter and Facebook and all that stuff make their money. They make their money in advertising, and they can only make their money in advertising by having lots of engagement, lots of interactions, people liking stuff, and studying this data in the background for what people are interested in, what people are liking, what people are engaging in, and then they can sell that to someone that sells something. You know, so let's say I'm on Facebook and I do. Uh, a post about photography. I go. I like traveling. I go. I do photography. I take some photos, and then now someone that sells, you know, like Sony cameras or like lenses and stuff, they can do an ad placement, and then that gets sent to me because they've done some studying in the background, and they can send me targeted ads. That's that's the whole thing. Now, if you think about it, if people start putting up loads of articles and then start exiting off the platform, suddenly you don't have that data anymore. That data is going to go to whatever news article is going to be there. They're going to know who's reading what. They're going to know where you're reading to, how much time you spend on that page. And they get that data instead that they can then sell to people that advertise on their platform. Because any news platform has those ads on the side of the screen that you see. And they're doing the exact same thing, right? And then Google gets that data and they can sell that on. So it's it's a data game. you got to think about it in a data game, right? Facebook has huge text data as well as image data. Instagram has huge image data. WhatsApp, they say they don't study data. I don't trust them at all. But just for now, let's take their word for it. You know, TikTok, they've got fucking crazy data, man. They have data on fucking everything, bro. Their algorithm is amazing. So if you look at it at a data game, that's where it is. So... Let's say the government's going to do something that would definitely not benefit Facebook. They're going to fucking crush the shit out of that, okay? And conversely, if Facebook do something that's going to be negative to the government, the government's going to be like, well, we're just going to step in and, and try and crush this down a little bit. So it's not like it's one way or the other. It's a bit of a balancing game. And right now we're in a race, right? Uh, things like ChatGPT, okay? They were trained off data that was, quote unquote, stolen from a lot of these platforms, right? Stolen off the Wayback Machine, stolen off Twitter. That's why Elon Musk has shut down the APIs. Hey, that really fucked me up. I'll tell you that much. That Switching that API, fucking, you know, that really hit my business. So what's, um, what's an, what is an API and, and what does it do and why did Elon shut it off? Okay, so... Yeah, I should probably explain that for people that don't understand. So um, an API is um, an application, uh, I think it's application programmatic interface. So basically, it's just a way for a computer to access another computer's data. And it's that, that's all it is. So when I would study data on Twitter, I would have an autom automated machine that would... Uh, contact Twitter through the API and make requests for certain bits of data that then can be read by my machine. And usually in an API, you get credits and that's per request. So let's say I want to have a look at, I want to read one Twitter post, that would be one credit essentially. And the old API used to be 15,000 requests per, uh, per 15 minutes or something. So you would have a, a rate limit after 15 minutes and it would, wouldn't let you do it until 15 minutes elapses and then you can do another 15,000 sort of reads. And so what you can, what, what Microsoft and what OpenAI were doing were they were basically setting up multiple accounts 
And they were just hoovering up all this data. And of course, whenever you read data like that on a platform, that costs a little bit of money. You know, there's a computer on Twitter's side that has to fulfill that request or not fulfill that request. And so for them, it costs them money, um, maybe a little bit of money. But it, if you times, you know, 15,000 requests per 15 minutes and you times that by how many machines are trying to contact Twitter at one time, that scales up to a, a quite a significant amount of money. And if you multiply that by the fact that that data is coming off the platform, being studied, being uh, turned into other things that people are then making money off, like, you know, now ChatGPT, people are charging money for that, right? So, you know, ChatGPT gets to charge money based on data that was out there in the open web. And Elon doesn't want that, you know, because data is the only thing that they have that they sell. And so if other people can make money off that data, that's terrible. That's that that is really bad. That is the worst case scenario, because that means that uh, essentially, uh, they're putting in all the work and not getting any return for it. So Elon has said, look, if you want to have access to the API, you've got to pay a, a, quite a bit of money uh, if you want to use it in, you know, in, in real force, uh, which I think is the right decision for Elon to make, even though it personally affects my business. I think it was the right decision for Elon to do that, you know, j- just to claw back some of his money, as well as turning off significant amounts of the API um, because before it was kind of open, you could access everything. You could you could write posts through uh, a machine. You could read posts. You could study the whole thing very very openly. And there's downsides and upsides to that. The downside is you get a lot of bot traffic. You know, you see those bots on Twitter, on Facebook. Mm-hmm. They're all they're not done through like a phone or something. They're done through like a machine that someone has coded right to automatically do that through the API. And turning off those APIs, and Reddit's done the same thing, it, it kills a lot of that. But the downside is, is you lose um, the journalistic sort of side of it, where a lot of journalists use the API to study Twitter. Uh, you lose some of the forensic intelligence people that use the API, which is uh, good and bad, Pe- people that are bad that use it, but also you know like anti-terrorist people use that platform. Um, but at the end of the day, it, it does it does cut down significantly on on bot traffic. So, so you're losing you're using it to look at like uh, keywords and and uh, sort of big picture like what people are are talking about kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, if you're trying to sell something it's very easy for me to go, okay, let's pick a keyword and let's find, you know, the, the right sort of people to, con- to, to to talk to. And then you just start studying what they're doing. And if they start to do things that um, indicate that they want to buy that particular product, then you can reach out to them. That's the whole idea. And of course, the social media have all that data, right? They know where you are. They know what you're doing because you're freely posting it online. All of this data is protected by the First Amendment and CCPNA and GDPR and stuff because you've already opted in for it to be used in that way. And so, you know, really, the you know, the more you post on social media, and this is why I'm not really active on social media other than for work, because the more you post on it, the more they know about you and the more that they can use your data to to sell um, and for people to, to, to send you products. So anyone that constantly goes on about, oh, they're stealing my data and they're doing this, you know, just, well, stop using social media then. Yeah, you're giving you know, it to them. 
Yeah, right. Like, you know, if you had to, because no one's going to pay monthly for social media, like that's just not a reality that anyone's going to do. And that's the solution, really, is to have a social media that people would pay, you know, like four pound a month or five pound a month to use. But that's our rate. No one's ever going to do that, especially when they can get really good social media for free and just put up with the fact that they're just going to have their information stolen. Well, not stolen, but sold to the highest bidder for whoever's going to sell them products, right? Well, it's one thing that is kind of, I don't know. I don't know if, if I would call it dubious. I'm, I'm not incredibly frustrated about it, but I am paying or, or we are paying for social media now because I noticed uh, about a week ago that the only people I saw in the comments, the only people that showed up in my feed were the blue check mark verified accounts. And then I don't remember how I came across the information, but I learned that if you're not verified, you won't be in people's feeds. And, and you'll have to go into, you know, and I always thought this was very suspicious. After you read the post and you scroll into the comments, if you scroll down far enough, you'll have to click show more replies. And sometimes there will be no comments, just the button that you have to click that says show more replies. So I thought, yeah, I got to do something about this because and, and, and it, what, what's your opinion on this? Because when I am getting more engagement yes. on, on the, the podcast account, it's the only account that I have. Mm-hmm. I want to be on more. And I have conversations, you know, follow, follow us on Twitter at Earthbox. I will talk to you. I posted uh, some, somebody posted a, a picture of Elon and said, what, if you ran into Elon, what, what questions or what, what's the one thing you would ask him? And so I, uh, I reposted it and I commented, uh, how many times has someone tried to kill you? Well, a person saw that and got offended and uh, she, th- there was a, a language barrier because I, I think she was uh, Spanish speaking. Oh, I see. And, uh, and I explained to her, I don't think Elon would be offended. It was not my intention to, uh, to offend or be offensive. It's, I mean, obviously Elon has uh, re- rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Uh, especially with kind of taking Twitter out of the public market and making it a, a what he claims a, to be a free speech platform, which has sort of evolved into a uh, suppressed speech platform, unless you pay, which is the point that I was getting at. I mean, we yeah. This, uh, this woman and I had, had a conversation, I cleared things up and I expressed, you know, I don't wish that people would try to kill Elon, but I do think that, uh, people, I I think he probably has stories and though, and that's what I want to hear, you know, as a, as a journalist, as a neo journalist, that's, that's what I would want to talk about if I was face to face with Elon, you know, Hey, what was it like? Cause I've seen pictures of him doing interviews on the street. And he's got guys around him that are that are just looking that and, and they're looking real nervous, like, hey, dude, will you please get in this car so we can get out of here? 
and he's he's taken this this massive tool and made it his own and there's there's still yeah, other sure. investors and and there's the ceo that's there's rumors about her being associated with the world economic forum and that really sets people off when they when they hear about this yeah, I mean, people associated with the World Economic Forum, I mean, once you get to a certain wealth level, it's kind of impossible not to be associated with the World Economic Forum. And we'll, like, and they'll just take your picture and put it on their website and say, oh, this, yeah, is, right. this is like, a promising... There, yeah, there are people, like, what people don't understand about the World Economic Forum is that there are people at the World Economic Forum, and then there's people that are just at the World Economic Forum. You know what I mean? Like, there's people that work there... And then there's people that just know someone that works there and goes to dinner with them. That is completely different. That'd be like me having dinner at my bank compared to me working at my bank. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and, and they, they obviously have an impact. The World Economic Forum has an impact on how the world operates. So... Yeah, definitely. Even if you're not on team World Economic Forum you would still want to go, you know, if, if you're at a certain economic level or, or you're running a company that operates at a certain, you know, global level, you would want to go and hear what these people have to say and see the, you know, what kind of plans they're discussing for the rest of the world so that you can adapt accordingly or, you know, prepare yourself or, you know, whatever, run, run and hide. But, uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Because, you know, if someone has a success story, you know, using a world economic forum plan or something like that, then that's going to attract more investors. Right. Um, I think one of the problems we've got now is, you know, that the tech bubble has kind of burst at this point. Uh, you know, that the kind of returns people were seeing on their money, you know, in tech stocks also just as tech entrepreneurs as become a lot less uh, to a, a you know a factor of probably 10 uh and that starts to realign priorities with these companies no longer are they really worried about ESG scores on anymore they're only worried about one thing and that is profitability how quickly can we become profitable uh and that's the only thing they give a shit about um which you could argue is probably the function of a company. Before, you know, in the 10 years between the, you know, 2008 financial crash and up, up just before COVID, it was very different. It was, you know, let's do the unicorn thing where we get a billion dollar valuation, we don't make any money and we sell the company before it makes any money to some massive conglomerate company and the owner makes a bunch of money and everyone's happy. Uh, that was the real thing. Now it's about profitability because you don't get that same return. And during that past 10 year time, there was a big focus on ESG, how can we make it sustainable and inclusive and all this sort of stuff, because it didn't, it didn't matter. You know, it, it didn't, it didn't matter because it, there wasn't the focus on, um, making money. The focus was on attracting as many people as possible in terms of employees. Uh, and you only do that by being as inclusive as possible by implementing an ESG score, as well as a lot of investment houses would only invest if, if you had some sort of ESG, um, uh, plan or project or something. Well, and this is, so that's this is one of the ways I was actually, uh, I was camping all weekend. 
and uh, discussing with my brother-in-law this this concept of ESG and yeah. and we were we were talking about Elon Musk and how he doesn't uh he has like almost no liquid assets like he's the the world's richest man you know almost worth almost 200 billion dollars or 180 billion dollars thereabouts but he you know he owns a Tesla. Okay. He, he probably flies everywhere that he has to go in, in reality stays in the office. You know, he was living at Twitter headquarters for a while and this is how he gets out of paying taxes because when he wants money, he just takes a loan. He, he, he just borrows against his own valuation, yeah. you know, his, his own yeah. companies and, and, and Twitter and et cetera. And that's how he can, he can always report a loss and he doesn't have to pay taxes. And this is how ESG takes control of him. And this is how ESG takes control of, of all the other CEOs that are playing this kind of game to avoid paying taxes. Now they have to follow the guidelines of the, these environmental, social, and governance standards because the banks are enforcing these standards and the carrot is a lower interest rate. Oh yeah, you're, you, you, have great, you, you have great sustainable uh, you know, environmental goals, you have a lot of social impact and you have a lot of diversity in your governance, we're gonna give you a great interest rate on, on whatever you're trying to borrow or we're going to invest heavily in, in your company. And that is now why we, why, that, that's why every company puts up a rainbow flag and every company has a, a trans campaign, uh, you know, all of the major companies, because they're trying to operate in a way that allows them to pay as few taxes as possible. That means, yeah, and, and, uh, of course it, it allows. Well, I mean, I say it, it did allow, I, I would say the, the existing loans, the existing investors that these big tech companies have definitely had. I would say even more aggressive ESG agendas where they wouldn't invest in your company at all if if you didn't have some sort of ESG agenda. Uh, nowadays, though, it is completely different. If you go in to, a comp to an investment house and you say, I want to do the next Deliveroo or the next, uh, you know, Just Eat thing and it's going to be the sustainable thing, they'll just go stop, okay? They don't give a flying fuck about any of that sustainability stuff anymore. The only thing they care about is return. How quickly can you get this idea off the ground and make it profitable so we can get returns on our money? That's the only thing they care about now. They don't care about ESG at all. Only the older loans and the older venture funds care about this anymore. And I know, I run a tech company. I know lots of people that uh, are trying to get money. The money is completely dried up. Uh, you know, if you can't show profitability, that's the only thing they care about. They don't care about sustainability. They don't give a shit. The only ones that really do care about that are the giant multinationals that have so much money that it doesn't matter. They can have a head of culture. They can have a head of inclusivity at their company. But, you know, anyone that's wanting to find real funding, like, C, you know, sort of a seed money for like plus 100 million, they're like, we don't give a shit about your company or anything about inclusivity, nothing. The only thing we want to know is what's your business plan? 
how are you going to turn this company into a profitable company so we can sell it for a good? Because that's the only way people buy companies anymore. They don't buy unicorn companies that don't show profitability. They only show, they only buy companies, you know, it's sort of like nine times EBITDA, uh, you know, with recurring revenues and good profitability, which is a good thing, which is yeah. a good thing. So I think finally, we might start to see the turnaround of this ESG bullshit and that in turn might undo a lot of this stuff that the WEF has been fucking pouting on about because no, because the, the model's broken. <laughs> what, you know, when we had 10 years ago and people were just making fucking shitloads of money, you know, before COVID and during COVID, people were making so much fucking money that, uh, that it didn't matter. So anything they did, it, it would be like, wow, you know, this is crazy and the WEF are giving us all these ideas for ESG and wow, that's great. Well, we're making like year-on-year gains of 50%, now it's like, holy shit, we didn't make a profit this, this, uh, this year. Well, I do... So it's, it's, yeah, it's completely different now. I, I do remember hearing uh, Larry Fink, the, the head of BlackRock, you know, big, massive uh, investment firm, you know. Yeah. Basically the, a, a, a supervillain, if ever there was one, Talking about, you know, sort of shifting away from ESG and, and, you know, maybe having second thoughts. Is that... Oh, I'm not surprised. His fucking commercial retail uh, fund is down 17% on the year. Yeesh. So I'm not surprised that he's, he's more worried about returns for his investors. They have now told investors that they, that they cannot take out their money now. Wow. Imagine being told so, that. No wonder. Yeah, exactly, right? But the reason they your reason they can't take out their money is because they buy their assets on debt as well using the investment money. And if you take out all the money, there's not enough liquidity for the premiums, the interest on the debt that you take on to buy, you know, like r- commercial real estate. And this is why and now I'm... for sure they can't sell it because if people take their money out, they they can't fucking sell it because if they sell it, They've, you know, they've written down 17% off their money. No one will make any money. It's fucking gone. It's, you know, it's, it's in the fucking distance. So is it, is it because of, in, in your opinion, just sort of the economic climate around the globe that, that these people are saying, okay, no more uh, fantastical ESG ideas. We, we just need profit. Or is it because the population has kind of rejected it? I think it pro- it's probably a bit of both. I think, I think in any harder economic times, people start to realign their priorities pretty quickly. I, I can imagine more people care about how they're going to pay their mortgage right now than they are about what kind of light bulbs they have in their house. And so that'll have something to do with it. So I can imagine green projects are a little bit more uh, difficult to get funding for uh, on that basis. But, you know, it, the, the economic system is bad. I mean, people are saying that it's okay, but but it, it is bad. It is bad, especially in commercial real estate, where, you know, a lot of these b- building companies, you know, because during COVID, everything was going fucking crazy. Okay. Everyone was buying stuff online. And so companies like BlackRock would essentially just bankroll shitloads of commercial property, you know, big warehouses big business uh, sort of 
blocks, uh, office spaces and stuff like that for people, you know, moving out of the big cities. And now that's all gone. People are working from home. They don't need an office. So like office space pricing has completely created through the ground. Um, nobody's uh, expanding their logistics because people aren't buying as much as they used to. Um, so like, you know, Amazon is shutting down some places. So you got to think who's going to be buying those. And plus a lot of companies are, are, some companies are going out of business or consolidating or automating certain things and closing off how much, you know, square footage they need because to save money, the whole growth thing is going down. So companies aren't like growing like crazy. So they're not moving into bigger places. And this is a big problem because when you sell commercial um, real estate, usually the commercial real estate is only worth anything if you have a renter in there already. Right, right. You know, quite often when you build something, you know, someone's already put the deposit down and said that they want to move in at some point. If you just have a big warehouse in the middle of nowhere, it's not really worth that much unless you have like a, a good renter in there. So commercial real estate is 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 way more volatile, way more risky than it would be... Um, you know, like a residential real estate where there's like a person because they're smaller, um, you get lots of them and you can join them together in, in you know, uh, uh, sort of RMBAs and stuff like that. But yeah, it's just a sign of the times, right? You know, commercial real estate's down 17%. Uh, that tells you everything you need to know about the, the about what businesses think about having more real estate on their books. They don't want to have to spend any more money on rent that they need to because, you know, it's a binding contract. They can't just break it, right? They'll have to do one year, two year, three year, you know, commitments. So that's just a sign of the times, right? Compared to re residential real estate where fucking no one is selling their property right now, especially in America. And there's not even places to rent. Yeah, it's like if you sell your property right now, now you got to get a new mortgage on 6 7%. So... Yeah, can't do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, right? That's 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 really that's really crazy. So, it's just a sign of the times and and people I don't think people have realized the situation the, the economy is in. I mean, if you look at Argentina, the situation over in Argentina is just I mean, it's it's nuclear. Oh, dude. It's nuclear. 100% inflation? Like, yeah, that's I mean, over that. Probably over that. Now. Right, right. Because, well, I mean, we all know it feels like you go to the, the shop in, in my neighborhood and everything is seven dollars. Everything. A can of whipped cream. Right. Seven dollars. It's insane. That's that is like double what it, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what it has been previously. And I mean, what it was just, you know, four years ago. And. So so apply that same principle to what they are saying the inflation is in Argentina. And it's like, I mean, what a uh, can of whipped cream is going to be 20, $21. And it's just enough yeah, to make you go, well, I'll just, I'll do without. And then people stop spending money. You just stop buying things. And, yeah. and then things only get worse. What, uh, what is going on in Argentina? Okay. So, People that don't know about Argentina is, is, is that Argentina is the, I think it's the second largest economy in South America. Um, significant farmland, significant sort of resources. Um, and they have been poorly run for a long, long time. Uh, they have had consistently high inflation year on year for probably five years. Um, and they have had at this point now, 
they have like a wombo combo of really high inflation. Um, their currency is cratering against the dollar. And they have debts in which they really can't afford. Plus, with the fact that they've had really bad weather this year, which means that crops are about 50% of what they were last year on yields, which further compounds the inflation, right? So it all starts in 2018. In 2018, the government goes bankrupt um, and they piss off the entire corporate uh, arena by essentially saying that any government bonds, which is basically a government bond is when you lend the government money and they pay you interest on that, just like it would be a bank loan or a, or a yeah, like a bank loan or savings account or something. Um, and they decided to just write all that off, default on the whole thing of all the companies that they had on it. And that basically just killed that market completely and their currency just nosedived. Then what happened is they secured a loan from the International Monetary Fund, which you may have heard of. They're oh, yeah. evil and good in, in different in different, you know, uh, glasses or tinted goggles or whatever. And they got about $48 billion worth of uh, loan from them, you know, with uh, with the guys that Argentina would go through an economic plan to, you know, restore their economy. Uh, COVID happened. Uh, they've just been terrible. And so they are now having, they now secured, I believe in 2020, they secured another $49 billion from the uh, IMF with the guys that, it would tack on to the end of their current thing. And now what's happening is, is that through extremely bad planning and um, a lot of socialistic things, so like a lot of people are employed by the government and a lot of uh, things have been controlled by the government. So you've got price fixing, you've got uh, wage guarantees and wage freezing. So um, they put like a ban on firing people for a while so it was like they're doing a lot of things to try and keep people in the workforce and paying them and then they're printing their local currency the peso and so what happens is is that a lot of people don't use the peso okay they use dollars us dollars um what happens is is that because people are using dollars and not the peso that means that the government bank uh starts to erode their own, um, you know, federal reserves to pay the premiums on their IMF uh, debts, and right now they're in negative. They actually owe the the. I think they owe somebody like two and a bit billion in 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 dollars. Mm. And then, okay, China to the rescue. So China says, "You're part of BRICS. Let's do a currency swap." So Argentina says, "Okay, we'll buy stuff in yuan in return for." Uh, pesos or dollars and that that quite often links currencies together to try and shore up supporting currencies and encourage people to use the peso and rather than the dollar because if people use the dollar um more people will use the peso to convert to dollars and if more people convert at the same number of pesos or more pesos into the same number of dollars that peso is going to go down because everyone's trying to convert it to dollars so it's sort of one of these snowball effects where no one trusts the peso because it's gone down 20% just this year, which is massive. Could you imagine the dollar going down that much? Like yeah. your money's worth 20% less in your savings in one year? That's crazy. 
uh, against the dollar. Uh, the dollar is becoming a lot stronger, and there's nothing the Argentine Argentinian government can really do other than just keep printing pesos and trying to convert it to dollars to try and pay off their debts to the IMF, which they can't do because they don't have any dollars to convert it into. You know, their currency is just, and if they do it too much, their local their local population are just going to increase inflation even more because they buy everything in dollars that they need to convert from pesos and yada, and they buy everything in this. So what I think what Brazil are trying to do is saying, look, we will, uh, we will, because they can't trust the the peso because the peso is just so crap. They're essentially doing, uh, we'll do like a guarantee on trade across the border where we'll pay in yuan and do a currency swap back to Brazilian bricus. So Argentina doesn't have to pay in US dollars; they can pay in yuan instead, which is more beneficial for them. And then Brazil gets a currency swap guarantee from China. Um, the only problem with that is now China's yuan is taking an absolute beating as well, which means that there's going to be more inflation even if they do it that way. Yeah, it's like dire so Argent- all over the all over the con- the planet. Oh, it's really bad. And for Argentina, it's super bad because they have nothing to sell. They've got you know just under a hundred billion dollars in debt to the IMF, which they have to pay. And if they don't pay it, they'll never get a single cent ever from anyone else ever. Um, and you've got an upcoming election. So there's lots of things happening all at once. One of the things that the, that the election is becoming quite clear is that people are starting to choose this third party guy. There's two major parties and they're, both parties are, are not picking a single candidate. They're kind of split, which means that there's kind of like a power vacuum for a third guy. So this third guy is more of a libertarian guy. I think you'd you'd like him. He's a fan of Trump. Um, And he has come up with the idea of, instead of using the Argentinian peso, to use the US dollar, which on the surface seems like a really good idea. And I think for the short term, it might be a good idea. The only problem they have is they don't have any currency reserves in dollars. So they would have to work something out, probably with the US government or the US Fed, to do some kind of currency swap deal where they swap all their pesos for dollars at a certain rate. Um, so that could be quite complicated. But I think for the long term, if the if the country goes on the US dollar, they'll be much more resilient to, you know, price swings. They'll be uh their population will be able to save their money in dollars rather than pesos. So their economic situation could become a lot more stable than it has been over the last like 50 years, you know, they've had like plus, you know, plus double digit inflation figures for like the last five years running minimum. I mean, they had like thousand percent interest going back to the 90s. It's just been a, you know, a constant barrage wow. of, of economic problems in Argentina. So it's one that I'm looking at really uh, intensely right now, because not many people really know about this, that into Argentina is in such dire straits. I mean, literally, they're almost on the edge of defaulting on their on their debt in dollars. Um, and they have this election that is coming up in in october so this could be a really really interesting time for somewhere that it contributes so significantly to the south american uh economy well one it's it's interesting to me that BRICS, this this new i mean i don't i don't know what you'd call it a, a lot of people are sort of scratching their heads and wondering what they're trying to accomplish because of all the differing sort of political viewpoints 
across all of the countries. And yeah, I think they're trying to go for like a more like, like an EU sort of like trading block. That's what they're trying to do. But their currency sucks. Like they're trying to use the yuan and everyone buys stuff in dollars globally. Do- dollars or euros. It's, so it's going to be tough because if their major currency is getting beaten up, then Brazil, you know, India, South Africa, they're going to be like, well, we may as well just use ours. And it saves us the cost of converting over to yuan. Do you think that that is going to change at all with the addition of of these new members? I mean, it seems like adding Argentina. I mean, what what do they want from Argentina? What does Argentina produce? Argentina produces a, a great deal of food. A great deal of food. Yeah. So that would and be I a think, net benefit. Yeah, for sure. It, 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 it serves them well to have a really good partner to produce a great deal of, of food and at a good price. The, the problem they have, though, is, it, is well, the, the reason why it's a good thing for them to help them out is if they can stabilize Argentina's environment, then they can up their crop yields and offer even cheaper food to South America and, and Asia. And they've also so it's more of an it's more of an investment. They've also added uh, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and the United Arab Emirates, which is going to uh, dramatically impact their abundance of oil and and the price of their oil too. I would imagine. But one uh, thing, po- possibly, yeah, possibly. I mean, I, I just. The, the the Middle Eastern one surprises me the most because I can't see them selling oil in yuan. Like, they're going to sell it in, in in dollars. And if they're going to sell it in dollars, then they need to do the currency swap. And if they need to do the currency swap, then they're not going to use yuan. And if they don't use yuan, then China doesn't see any benefit from from that. I think one of the things that, they, that China wanted is they wanted some sort of political foothold in in the Middle East, because historically they haven't had anything. Um, and their Belt and Road Initiative failed fucking horribly. Um, so I think well, these, this is just I their mean, way of, of expanding down there. They're, they're wealthy nations, right? Saudi Arabia and Iran and the United Arab Emirates. I mean, what, it, what would they need China for? I mean, that, that's kind of the perplexing thing about this development, you know, with all of these, you know, these six new members joining BRICS. Yeah. Oh, I should have I should have figured out a new acronym with all with all of these extra letters. <laughs> That'll be something yeah, fun for, sure. for next. We should total them up and see 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 what we can make out of it. Like, uh, yeah, help us out. Come up with your best ideas for a new bricks yeah, acronym. Like down or something. <laughs> <laughs> and and at me on uh, on X, and uh, and we'll we'll announce it next week. Yeah. But, um, so what, one of the things one of the things they could do is similar to what the EU does and say, well, if you want to sell to any of these countries, you have to abide by these rules or you have to buy it in yuan. You have to buy it in this. You have to uh, appease to, to, to this particular rule. And that's essentially what, what they could do. Um, the only problem with that is there are a collection of countries that are endemically broken. And so quite often... They don't have the same buying power. And that's maybe why they're grouping together because their collective buying power is more significant than they would be on their own, especially somewhere like South Africa or Argentina, in which their individual buying power is basically fucking zero um, because their economies are, are, are shit. 
But if you've got the main character in this whole thing is China, and China does, it is declining so rapidly Hard. right now. Yeah, you know they're yeah they're going from somewhere that people thought was going to be the largest economy on earth. They were going to eclipse the U.S. and we should all start learning Mandarin and Cantonese and Fujonese and you know start eating Chinese food. You know now it's like they're a fucking joke. They have no housing sector. They're, they're a largest house housing uh, company just went bankrupt. Second one's going to go bankrupt. The regional banks are fraudulent. Um, people aren't investing in China like they used to. Uh, Chinese stock markets are completely rigged. You're not allowed to invest money in China other than like in housing as a personal citizen. It's a joke. that they're, they're, They are significantly reducing their economy um in a space where really they should be they should be benef- they should be benefiting if you think about it in an economic downturn making products over in china or similar other asian nations should be beneficial but people are realizing that even though uh, china's really well set up for some of these manufacturing things and they're a bit more expensive than they used to be but that the bureaucratic and other, you know, political risk that it takes to put your company stuff in China now significantly outweighs any sort of cost benefit that you'd get from that because they can just turn around and go, well, you know, like a great example is is a company in the UK called ARM. They make uh, instruction sets for small embedded computer systems and they had a Chinese uh, counterpart, ARM China or whatever. Um, and the guy that ran that Chinese company for ARM out there just decided, nah, I'm just going to steal it. I'm just going to steal the whole thing. And the Chinese government was like, yeah, it's fine. No problem. And that's the risk. It's the internet, it's the intellectual property. It's all that sort of stuff. So it's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's like, uh, I don't know. I don't see China's going to be big for sure, but are they going to be the ones that are going to steer this like bricks thing and really, you know, make a success of it? No, 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 no. Well, that's what makes me You're wonder right. like w- what China's hurt. They're, they're weak right now. You know, the, the, uh, the Yuan, I'm sure following suit. Why, why are all of the, like, where, where does the ruble fall? Why, why is Russia saying, yeah, let's, let's just defer to China and we'll use China's currency. When the ruble, at least in some circles, is claimed to be doing well, or maybe maybe even better than the dollar. No, no, the ruble is getting fucking hammered. I mean, the ruble is really getting hammered hard uh, against the dollar, and that's probably why they're going against the yuan. Um, because if they do currency swaps to yuan and then yuan back to dollars, it might be actually better, you know, in in long term than it would be just going to the dollar short term. Because the going from rubles to dollars is really expensive. If if you look at if you pull up the graph now, ruble versus the dollar, I guarantee you it looks like a it looks like a a straight graph or a yo yo at the very least. Yeah, it's horrible. Ten cents? No, one cents. Is that one cents? Yeah, yeah. One ruble. Yep. Yeah. It's bad. It's it's really bad. It's the worst. It's it's the worst it's been, and that's because, uh, first of all, you know, stuff that you can buy in rubles has significantly lowered. You can't buy much in in rubles because they've uh, in, invaded Ukraine, right? And and that's caused. I mean, yeah, the the sanctions. Yes, yes, and as well as you know, all oil in the world is sold in dollars. 
So any oil that you sell has to be converted from rubles to dollars unless they unless they say you must buy in rubles that Russia tried that with with the EU and ended up uh losing that battle um and I think that's probably why they're they're siding with China China's been a great trading partner with with Russia although China's not happy at all with the Russian situation it's it's hit them just as hard as it's hit you know Russia um and so Russia really needs China. They're they're their only real friend. They're close to them. They share a border with them, and um, they're both communists. They, yeah, they're both they're both uh, communist in a way, I guess. You know, At least they're enough, close Russia, to on the same. Less communist than China, but yeah, they're they're closely on the same page. Oh, for sure, yeah. And most products now in in Russia are now are now Chinese, so. It, it presents a significant market for, for the Chinese, but nothing like would be a European nation where people pay a lot more for uh, products. You know, you can take something from Alibaba. Like, let's say you're a dropshipper and you go on Alibaba or some manufacturing company and you make fidget spinners and you buy a thousand fidget spinners for, let's say, 10 quid. And then you can drop it over here in the UK and sell them for three pound of fidget spinner but over in russia no one's gonna fucking pay that much money right so the chinese are in two minds they need uh sure they'll sell their products in in russia and if they can buy them in yuan that's even better because that shores up some of their currency if they can convert rubles to um to yuan uh but at the same time, it, it's it's more of a drag because the, the longer the Russian situation goes on, the more everyone else becomes pissed off with China and Russia, and it just hurts them in the process. So for them, it's not really a, a, a profit. It, it, for them, it's more of a distraction, um, whereas if it was more of an open market, they could make a bit more money. There's this sentiment in in the States, at least, and maybe globally, I don't know. That when you're having economic problems, if you go to war, that will help your economy because you you know you suddenly have this this demand and and you probably also get investment. Is is that what's going on with with Russia invading Ukraine? Is is the war that's you know about to blossom into full-blown World War III, is that helping the economies of, of Russia and China, or is it hurting them, in, in your opinion? I would definitely say it's hurting them. You know, for Russia, they're not exporting any of their... You know, before, they would export all their military goods, right? So they would make money. But right now, they're making their military goods and they're just burning them on the border with Ukraine, you know, blasting each other. So could you, know, you, could you argue that so, it's... Go ahead. No, I'm just saying, like, contrast to America, you guys basically guarantee, like, a loan to Ukraine and give them weapons and then that pays for, you know, you're not, like, burning people, you're not burning your resources, you're paying... Uh, Essentially, you're just paying it forward, as well as many other countries that are benefiting from this that are not actively in the war, let's say, but are supplying it. So it's a significant, it's a significant like uh, economic boom for anyone that sells, you know, military products. Um, 
But for Russia, it's fucking terrible. They've got to go to people like Iran and pay through the nose for shitty equipment. They got to go to China and pay through the nose for their shitty equipment. They got to they got to go deep in the stocks of Soviet stuff and find that, you know. And they're not selling. They, they, the only thing they are selling is their oil, and they can't even sell that at market price. They're selling it for India for for half what it's usually worth because it's not as good oil as you would get from Saudi Arabia or Canada or America. You know, it's it's. It's okay. It's fine, but uh, you know, if economically wise, the only thing that Russia has is it does have a lot of money. They have they have a great deal of rubles in reserve. They got a great deal of dollars in reserve. Whether you know whether they can spend them accurately is is another thing, and their ability to create weapons and to create you know economies is, is is another thing to be to be said as well. But you know, would I say this is an economically beneficial situation for Russia? No, I would say. Any other country that's not actively in the war but selling weapons or generating weapons somewhere like Bulgaria, you know, I would literally be salivating if I was Bulgaria or Romania that, you know, build a lot of ex-Soviet style weapons like AK-47s and, you know, 762 by 39 millimeter rounds, you know, by the kilo. I'd be sitting pretty, man, because I'm not sending my people over there, but I'm selling stuff. Yeah, a lot of weapons. And that's kind of where I was going. It makes sense that since America has kind of been the world's army, or I should say it's, it's more the world's police, but the globalists army yeah, being able to sell a bunch of weapons to Ukraine and provide a bunch of loans to Ukraine is economically beneficial, not just for the United States, but for all the other countries that are profiting from selling their weapons to Ukraine. Do you think that that's why, or, or at least one of the reasons why the war is persisting, that we haven't had peace agreements? I mean, one, one thing I've always, not to just drastically shift gears here, but one thing that I've always wanted to ask about, ask you about specifically is the rumor or, or whatever, the, the reporting that Boris Johnson actually, actually went over and killed a potential peace deal? Did you hear anything about that? I've not heard about that, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case. I know on, on, on one hand, you can't negotiate with terrorists is, is mm-hmm. the, the sort of sentiment, right? Because in, you know, small picture, a terrorist country kidnaps your citizens and then you pay a bunch of money to these terrorists to return your citizens you're just opening the door for more terrorists to kidnap more of your citizens so big picture russia ukraine world war three we're looking at allowing russia to cross ukraine's border and annex these territories to put it gently Allowing that to happen just means you're kind of sending the message to any other militant countries that, yeah, you go ahead and just take territories of countries that you believe that you have claim to, and we'll just negotiate a peace deal that allows you to keep those territories. But I think there's definitely an element of profitability entering the minds of the leaders of these countries that are going, well, hold on now. We're raking in all this cash from selling our weapons and our loans to these conflicted countries. 
why do we want to shut that off? Yeah, for sure. I, I I can I could probably name about four or five different companies that would probably hate a peace deal. They 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 would probably actively lobby or uh you know contact people to try and prevent it at any cost because they're making so much money. Well, and you said several episodes ago, it may have even been before you became the official co-host that you thought the re- Ukraine war was here to stay and it, that it's going to be sort of a, a another forever war for the the West, at least, to be involved in just like Afghanistan, where they can collect profits hand over fist by selling you know, loans and weapons to these countries. Mm. How does that translate? You know, I, I want to play this clip from... Uh, Tucker Carlson's recent interview with the president, I think that's the, the correct terminology, the president of Hungary, Viktor Orban. Um, so if you were in charge of NATO, if you were, say, Joe Biden, uh, what would your next move be in the war in Ukraine? What would you do? Peace, immediately. Call back Trump. That's, that's, that's the only way out. Call back Trump. Call back Trump. Because, you know, you can criticize him for many reasons. I understand all the, all the discussion. But, you know, the best foreign policy of the recent several decades belonged to him. He did not initiate any new war. Yes. He treated nicely the, 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 the North Koreans and, and Russia, even the Chinese, you know. He, he, he delivered a policy which was the best one for Middle, for Middle East, Abraham Accords. Yes. So, so that was a very good foreign policy. He, you know, he's criticized that he's not, you know, he's not educated enough to understand the word. But this is not the case. Facts count. And his foreign policy was the best one for the world in the last several decades I have seen. And if he would have been the president at the moment of the Russian invasion started, no... It would, it, it would be not possible to do that by the Russians. So Trump is the man who can save the Western world and the, probably the human beings in the, in the globe as well. That's, that's my personal conviction. Do you agree with that assessment? Do you of think, Trump? Do you think Russia doesn't invade Ukraine if Trump wins another term? Uh, I, can't, I can't see Russia not invading under Trump. Actually, it probably would have helped them. I can't imagine Trump giving out billions of dollars in aid to, to Ukraine uh, like Joe Biden has. That would have significantly shortened the war. Um, yeah, I think the, the, the stance that the Western world has gone on is, has been the very hard line which you, Ukraine wanted. Um, I can see Trump not really getting involved, not wanting to get involved in it. And that would have you know, significantly hurt Ukraine's chances to to fend it off. I can't, yeah, I can't see, yeah, I can't see why Trump being in presidency would suddenly be way more scary for Russia. Because I can't see, like, for example, I can't see Trump, like, putting himself in the line of fire, like, saying, you know, if you step on Ukraine, we'll fucking nuke you or something. I can't see Trump saying that. I I feel like Trump was very much like... I I think he was very much like uh, 
America first, and if it immediately affects America, you know, then that's then that's a problem. But I I can't I no I don't I don't I don't I don't see that. I can un, I can agree with some of Trump's foreign policy, you know, the hard stance on China, um, and some of the stances around immigration. Sure, but. Well, and he I had can't those... see why Putin was particularly scared of Trump. Was I, 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 is that an assessment that you had that that Putin was more scared of Trump um, than than he would be more a more Democrat sort of war hungry uh, government? I, is that your assessment of Trump? Well, it brings up an interesting conversation, and it's always good when that pops in ten minutes before we break. But <laughs> um. It's interesting because on on one hand, during Trump's presidency, there was the whole Russia collusion narrative. He was a mm-hmm. he was a Putin puppet and and all of those great, you know, headlines. So on one hand, if he doesn't take a hard stance against Russia, then it perpetuates the narrative that he's a friend of Putin and a friend of communist Russia. But it's like Orban just said yeah. in that in that interview, he was trying to be he was trying to be friendly with everyone. He didn't want to start any wars. So I think it does. I, I, I think your point that Russia wouldn't have done anything different is is pretty intriguing because. Of what I just mentioned. Yeah, if Russia does invade Putin, Putin has never said the Russia that like the Western world is fucking weak. Uh, and that's the reason we did it. They were like, no. Uh, Putin says this was historically Soviet land and I want to reunite Ukraine because it's actually our territory and we want to take it. Well, yeah. And the, the Russian people wanted the, the Russian people in Ukraine wanted to be part of Russia. And so they had right, these, right, right, right. You know, these votes he, he, on. He didn't say, yeah, he, he didn't say like, well, uh, the Western world has too much of a hold over. Uh, you know, well, I think you might have alluded to that. Well, but. it was NATO. NATO had an agreement with Russia that said, we're not going to expand to your borders. And then it was like, ever since NATO made that agreement, they've been expanding closer and closer to Russia's borders. But this is the excuse that Russia gives for its, its reason to invade Ukraine. And that's where it, maybe Trump being president would have had an impact because maybe he would say, you know, hey, if you try to expand into Ukraine, the United States is going to leave NATO. Although that does create this, you know, presumption that Trump is working for Putin. But he also, I mean, I don't know. I never had a problem with Trump reaching out to North Korea to try to be friendly, trying to be friendly with China, trying to be friendly with Russia. Like, these all seemed like good ideas. I can't remember him being friendly with North Korea. Like, wasn't he making fun of Kim Jong-il or Kim Jong-un? yeah, yeah, but that was all at the beginning. Once they uh, established their, their friendship, Trump actually crossed on foot from South Korea into the neutral zone between South Korea and North Korea and met with Kim Jong-un. It's, it's all on camera, like his crazy historical accomplishment that no American president had ever done before mm. since the, you know, since the Korean war. And I mean, you remember North Korea was, they were launching all of those missiles over Japan and, and, uh, yeah. that all stopped once, uh, 
Trump and and Kim Jong Un, you know, became friends, or at least that was the picture that was painted to the population. Yeah. But when you when when Viktor Orban goes on Tucker and says Trump is the answer to sort of global stability, do you think he's legit? Or do you think he's trying to just impress Donald Trump? I mean, I I think like Donald Trump is yeah. To be fair, like, what is his version of stability? I mean, Hungary is not the most stable nation ever. Like when Trump went in, he blew up the relationship with China. He blew up NAFTA. He blew up his relationship with North Korea in the beginning, uh, and he blew up a lot of relationships with other nations in the Middle East as well. So, and then you know, eventually it got better. But I wouldn't say he's like the pinnacle of stability. What I would say is like he put America first. I will say I will say that you know, and he traded. The stability, because the easiest thing to do is just to let China do whatever they like and make money, and everyone and everyone's happy, right? The hard thing okay. to do is to blow up your relationship with China and piss them off, and you know your citizens pay more money in the short term because you're having to put import tariffs on things from China. So I don't know. I think he's trying to kiss Trump's ass a little bit, but there's a reason for that, right? Populist figures. Bolsonaro, Orban, Putin, they tend to like themselves, each other, because they're, they are populists themselves. So they like other people that are populists. It's similar to the fact that, you know, I like you as a host. I like you as a person because I share similar values. So it's, I think it's one of those things like, you know, you expect that someone that's a leftist also likes someone else that's a leftist. I can imagine that Jeremy Corbyn here in the UK would like Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders, um, as opposed to not liking Rishi Sunak or Trump or Ron DeSantis or something like that. So, you know, am I surprised that Victor Orban's a fan of Trump? No, he's essentially the same thing, but in Hungary. And he knows, Victor Orban knows that he's going on Tucker Carlson, you know, maybe the most popular uh, media personality in, yes. in America. And he sees that Donald Trump is polling really well uh, for the the presidential election. I don't know if he. I mean, he he's he's far from there. He's he's far from from a shoe in. There's there's so much working against him, and that's why this clip from Tucker Carlson was really, you know, the, these these statements from Viktor Orban on Tucker Carlson were so impactful for me because. I always felt like it was the world against Trump at, at, at I mean, well, not always, but at, at a certain point towards the end of his administration, I thought it's the world against Trump. Everybody yeah, hates sure. him. How is he going to win his election? And lo and behold, he lost. But if Trump is such a champion for global stability and the globe is against him, what does the globe have to gain from the loss of stability? And a World War III. It has to be the profits and the control that comes from the destabilization. Because this is what it seems the globalist elites, the controlling entities, use when they don't like the leadership in certain... Sorry, my alarm's going off. 
that that they they don't like the leadership in these certain countries, so they go in and they destabilize, and they destabilize with things like feminist movements, which was one of the big aspects of the the Maidan coup in Ukraine, which you know a lot of people believe got us to this point now, where the West. I mean, this is this is all this is sort of the conspiracy theory that the West went in, you know, with with funding from people like George Soros created these artificial cultural, you know, movements. And uh, who was it that said uh, someone in the Middle East? Was it Arafat, Yasser Arafat, maybe? I don't think so. I think that's wrong. But it was someone in Israeli leadership said, all you need is about 8% of the population to, to continuously protest uh, for a certain, uh, you know, a certain movement, and ultimately you will prevail. You will have the outcome that you want. So if these mega billionaires with, you know, bottomless bank accounts can fund 8% of a population to protest on a certain issue, that can be destabilizing enough for these outside uh, entities to influence the policy and the leadership in these other countries. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, uh, Victor Orban himself is someone that is incredibly rich. And funnily enough, he has a uh, monopoly on the media empire in Hungary. So that's like all the news articles. Well, and that's kind of what I was getting companies. at with with the the natural transition to from from capitalism to communism. These people reach the top and they want to stay there. And the best way for them to accomplish that is to mold government policy and culture to their, you know, to to whatever way is beneficial for them. And Yeah, for sure. It it it's no surprise that political leaders and corporate oligarchs would all behave the same way. I I think it's just best illustrated in in the quandary that surrounds big tech right now i mean it 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 can all be fine it can all be great when it's the right people pulling the strings and when you yeah. look at at sort of the global climate and the global landscape an entity like the ccp and china is not a good example of someone you want to be pulling the strings and creating policy for the rest of the world because they are that oh, definitely totalitarian boot on the neck, uh, you know, no freedom, no flexibility sort of, of organization. And they've been described as the world's worst global criminal organization. And, and I, I tend to agree, even though I have no ill will towards the Chinese people. And I, and I do truly believe that if things were bad enough, for the Chinese people in China, there would be some kind of revolution. We're just not there yet. And, and I'm, I'm ignorant to what life is really like in China, ad admittedly so. And the same for Russia and the same for really any country yeah. that isn't the one I live in right now. Yeah, yeah. I think like the, the long-term damage of somebody like Trump isn't necessarily Trump himself. Uh, pe people talk about Trump like he's radioactive and you know everything that he touches turns to 
you know, that becomes toxic or he's immediately dangerous for the American people or America, something like that. It's, it's, not, really a, it's not really Trump himself, but it's the acceptance of populist figures in America. That is the dangerous thing for it because populism is one of these things which works great, just like any system, when you have a leader that you like and does things that you think is good. You know, and it's the difference between Kim Jong-un and like Saddam Hussein, right? Like Saddam Hussein for the longest time, people loved him, you know? Nobody fucking likes Kim Jong-un. They have to fucking like him. Yeah. And that's the difference. It's the same thing, but a different person. And once you get into a system which perpetuates that, not perpetuating the behavior of the individual person, but just perpetuating the acceptance of there being a populist figure... Then you get into a situation where, um, okay, so Trump Trump goes, okay, he he wins again, and 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 sure he shows that it's possible to win again as a populist figure. Someone else, someone worse than Trump, uh, someone you know seriously damaging, uses the same technique, gets into the same position, and starts doing some things that could be considered extremely damaging. And, you know, even worse than that, someone could use the same thing that Trump did and do an even better job. And people love him. And, you know, they eventualize him and say, you go for a third term, you go for a fourth term. Hey, you just keep going, man. You just keep going the whole way. And then you're in the similar position that Putin's in. Putin's a life leader, man. He's not going anywhere, similar to Lukashenko in Belarus. So that's the real danger around populist figures. It's not necessarily them personally, but it's the acceptance of them and and the willingness for people to give them power that they shouldn't have uh, to keep going. And that's, and, and that's why they do things like controlling the state media, as, as Viktor Orban does, uh, you know, as you said. It allows them to maintain their power. And yeah, if, we don't, sure. if we don't have an honest media, like we do not currently, then we wind up with an ignorant public and all of these problems are, are allowed to perpetuate. We're meant to just keep our nose buried in our, in our you know, video games and, and the real housewives of New Jersey and not paying attention to what the rich elite are doing to the country around us. And it's just one quarter at a time. They, they don't, they, they have no foresight. They have no desire to create a better future. It's just, uh, you know, it's, it's the pinata analogy. Smash it open, grab all the candy, and move on to the next thing. Yeah. I mean, the, the benefit that America has is there's so much bureaucracy and there's so many people involved that it becomes just so difficult to get into a position uh, that that can happen. It takes so much work over a long period of time to unpick all of that. You know, there's so many systems involved and so many people uh, to be paid off or, you know, under the tables and stuff like that. It, it takes a great deal of time to undo, you know, hundreds of years of electoral process and uh, and, and people. So that that's the only real, uh, you know, for bad or for worse, the bureaucracy that America has is it saving grace? Yes. And I think, you know, as you mentioned, it has taken a long time to get the bureaucracy to this point where we have partisan everything. And unfortunately, I feel like it's going to take a long time to undo. And it's, it's like I've always said, our enemies, foreign and domestic, have had 70 years plus 
to study all of our governing documents and find all the loopholes and all the chinks in the armor that are allowing them to inflict all of this cultural pain on us. And, and I, I feel like that's where all of the, uh, the sort of cultural agitation that, that we're suffering through right now is all products of foreign influence campaigns. But we are out of time and we're out of space. <laughs> Just to throw a little inside joke there for me and 404. Thank you all very much for listening. We have to go. It's, uh, it's paramount that we stop recording right now, unfortunately. But one of the beautiful things about this duo here before you is that we can go forever and we, uh, we will. I mean, forever is uh, maybe an exaggeration, but who knows? With you know, advancements in medical technology, we may be going for another two, 300 years. Uh, yeah, let's hope. So uh, until next time, visit uh, vox404.com, follow the show, and please, we implore you, share the show, help us grow. We will talk to you soon. <laughs>